series, God's Unmistakable Voice. And I think we're starting to see a few weeks in what that voice sounds like. And, and in the Minor Prophets, uh, we continually see over and over that he is both loving and just. He is both holy yet accessible. Uh, he is righteous, but he's also gracious. He will bring about his will on the earth regardless of how we feel about it. But his heart is, his desire is that we would know him and trust him and love him. And he gave everything for that to be possible. And so we're going to continue today uh, with the little book of Obadiah. It is less than 300 words in the original Hebrew, 21 total verses. If you were to look at a hard copy of the Bible, it would probably look something like this. Depending on your font size, it's like a half a page or maybe a full, you know, three-quarter page or something like that. One of the shortest books in the Bible. Uh, it's right before Jonah, which I'm really excited about getting into next week. Um, Jonah being one of probably the, the best known of the minor prophets. Uh, but don't judge a book by its cover. Hey, let there be light. <laughs> you like that Genesis reference? I mean, it was right there. Good job, Chad. All right. They're going to keep working on this. Um, thank you. Hey, by the way, chat, thank you. I seriously, I think I woke him up when I called him, so I really appreciate that. Um, so Obadiah, um, uh, don't judge a book by its cover. It really packs a punch, these 21 verses. And it really, and I'll admit, I was, I sh- probably shouldn't have been, but I was surprised at how timely and relevant the message of Obadiah is in 2018. Obviously, God's word is always relevant, but just the specifics of it. I just was really astounded by. And so um, we're going to get into it today. And you know, that's the thing. God's word is not made irrelevant by the passing of time. And so even though Obadiah, when you read it, there might be some things on a superficial level that seem a little strange or uh, its relevance maybe isn't obvious to us. When we begin to peel back the layers and understand the history we find it speaking with remarkable clarity into our life in the 21st century. Um, There's two timeless questions that Obadiah really answers, and I'm going to put them up here on the screen. Uh, The first is this. Who do we trust to carry us through life? Obadiah addresses that head on. And the second question is this. How should we react when we are mistreated because of our faith in God? Who do we trust to carry us through life, and how should we react when we are mistreated because of our faith in God? The first of those questions, who do we trust, that's kind of an internal question, right, uh, is, is our heart. Who are we trusting? And, um, you know, we're not always honest with ourselves when we answer that question. I know I'm not. Um, you know, because we'll, I think we will say or we will think, you know, yeah, I trust God. I believe he's good and he loves me. But, but you know, to what extent do we really trust him? How much control are we still holding on to in our life or grasping for? How much security do we really find in ourselves? How much security do we find in the perception of us that other people have? It's a question about the interior, our heart. Uh, The second question, uh, how do we react when we're mistreated? That's kind of an external question. It comes to us from the outside. How do we react or what do we think Uh, when someone mistreats us because of our faith. And look, there's a scale of that, of mistreatment. Um, In this country, mercifully, there is not um, persecution of Christians in the classic sense in terms of an ongoing widespread threat to our lives. 
It's true the culture has kind of shifted away from a more default Christian perspective, and there can be challenges associated with that. There's definitely in this country some cultural antagonism on some subjects, um, but we do have constitutional protections. We have free speech, uh, but many other countries don't have that. They are uh, Christians, they are persecuted in a tangible, classic sense. They're physically attacked or imprisoned or killed uh, for their faith. But, but the point is, whether you're dealing with kind of teasing for, for our faith in God or real persecution, we do have to ask ourselves, you know, how do we react when we are struggling, um, when we are mistreated for our, our faith in the Lord? We have to ask the Lord to shape our heart. And Obadiah is going to ask these two questions. Where is our trust really? And how do we respond when we find ourselves being mistreated? But here's the amazing thing about Obadiah. His answer to both of those questions is the same thing. He has one answer. And so we're going to find that. Uh, So open your Bible. Um, Right now, they're still (laughs) working on it, so you may not be able to see it. So we'll just have it up on the screens. Um, but, But I want to talk a little historical background first. Because Obadiah talks a lot about this people called the Edomites. They are front and center in this book. And so we need to know who they are and what they were like, because that's going to really bring to life what God was saying about them. Uh, The Edomites were a group of people who lived um, just to the east, uh, southeast of Israel. Um, So they were kind of close neighbors of ancient Israel. They had a shared lineage with Israel. They were descendants of Esau, who's the brother of Jacob, the patriarch, one of the patriarchs of Israel, the Edomites were not friends with the Israelites. Uh, they were antagonistic, unhelpful at the least, at times outright enemies. And God, uh, in Obadiah, in the book of Obadiah, God is speaking about the role the Edomites played in something catastrophic that happened to Israel. And that is the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the people of Israel out of the promised land. Now, we have not talked about the exile yet in this series, but in a lot of these prophets we're going to come to, the exile becomes front and center. If you were to look at the whole Old Testament story, uh, the arc of the story of the Old Testament, kind of the end of that story, almost the end, is the exile, the exile of, of the people of Israel. They were literally kicked out of the promised land by God because of their unfaithfulness over many generations. And I I, I really can't overstate how cataclysmic this was. God exiling his own people from the land he promised to them. His temple destroyed the place where his presence was. And they had been warned by the prophets for generations. You've got to stop worshiping these other gods. You've got to return to the Lord with your whole heart. And he warned them this was going to happen, and they just would not listen. And so finally, they are exiled from the promised land. Um, And it happened kind of in two stages. Um, I've got a map here of the exile. So here's Israel over here. The mechanism God used for their exile was the great empires to the east, the Assyrians in the north, the Babylonians in the south. And what happened is the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and deported all of them back to Assyria in 722 BC. And then the southern kingdom of Judah lasted a little longer to 586. And the Babylonians came in, destroyed Jerusalem, and exiled them to Babylon, which was a control tactic. We're going to defeat you, and we're going to force you to live in a foreign land so you can't rebel against us. And, and this, by the way, this exile is chronicled outside the Bible in lots of places. If you go to the Assyrian uh, 
archaeological records, you find these reliefs they carved of depicting the ancient Israelites being forced into exile, being defeated and being forced to leave their homes. It was this massive thing that happened in that part of the world at the time. And Obadiah, this little book, was written just after this had happened. The Israelites are in exile, and God is speaking judgment onto the Edomites for their role in what happened. The Babylonians are the ones who actually came in and took the Israelites out, but the Edomites were involved in that, and God has a message for them, and and we're going to learn about what it means to trust God and how to respond when we're mistreated through his message to them. So let's go ahead and jump in. Obadiah 1, it says this, The vision of Obadiah, this is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We've heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You, and he's talking about Edom, will be utterly despised. The pride, highlight that word pride. The pride of your heart has deceived you. And then highlight this phrase. This is how God describes the Edomites. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So God is confronting the pride of the Edomites. And and the pride is this. They had a misplaced trust in their impenetrable location of where they were. Um, Edom, I pointed out on the map, was this area, this 5,000-foot plateau. And it's cl- I have a picture of what it looks like. It's kind of this rugged terrain. Uh, cliffs, caves, narrow ravines. It was remote. It was stark. And so they thought, we're entirely safe out here. And actually, you may have seen some pictures of the civilizations that were built in this area around this time. If you've ever seen a picture of ancient Petra, this is in this area. This was the land of the Edomites. And so to get to these areas, you had to go through these narrow corridors. Here's another picture to get to that. You've got to wind your way through these ravines, and it's just this very secure location. This is why God called them, you who live in the clefts of the rock. This is where they were living, in this area. And so a large army could not invade in the traditional sense because of the terrain. And it led to, in the Edomites, a very deep cultural pride and sense of total self-sufficiency and security. And so that's where their trust was. So if the question is, you know, who do you trust to carry you through life? It's a question we all have to ask ourselves. If the Edomites were answering that question, they trusted in themselves, in their kingdom, in their geography. They could never be brought low. There could never be an army who could take them over. And you know what? We have our own little kingdoms that we build as well, that we put our trust in. The kingdoms of our bank accounts or our safe neighborhoods or our, our uh, routines or the jobs that we have or our national power on the global stage. We think nothing could ever hurt us. We're secure. We don't need to trust in God. What we've built is secure. That's an Edomite attitude. And, and a better English word, I think a more precise English word than pride, um, is hubris. It's that excessive pride, foolish confidence in yourself. It's the builders of the Titanic saying it's unsinkable. It's the banks, we're too big to fail. You know, It's that kind of attitude. This is how the Edomites felt about themselves. So let's keep reading. Verse 5. 
God says this, if thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau, that's another term uh, for the Edomites, but how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. Highlight that, hidden treasures. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. So God speaks of their hidden treasures. That's another allusion to their location. In fact, Greek historians from the time spoke about the Edomites and talked about, yeah, they're those people who are hidden in their mountain fortresses. You know, they're, they're hiding out there. And so God says that, you know, your hidden treasures, they're not going to last. They're going to be pillaged. Let's keep going. Verse 8. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom? Highlight that, wise men of Edom. Those of understanding in the mountains of Esau, you, your warriors, Taman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. So here's another thing about Edomite culture. They were known for their intellectualism, their wisdom. And so God says, you know, you're wise men of, Eden, of Edom. That's their reputation. And what's really interesting is that scholars, uh, when they look at the ancient Edomites, they find them to be much less religious than all the surrounding cultures of that time. Some would go so far as to say they were kind of agnostic or atheist, a very unique culture. And so they thought very highly of their high thinking. They were kind of humanistic, enlightened. They're like the Vulcans of the ancient, you know, uh, Near Eastern world. It's all about their own wisdom, okay? And they have these elite fighting forces. And so look, their trust, God is saying, if it's in your geography, it's not going to help you. If it's in your wisdom, it's not going to help you. If it's in your fighting prowess, it's not going to help you. And now we're about to see, starting in verse 10, why Edom is under this judgment from God. It was their mistreatment of Israel during the Babylonian invasion when Jerusalem was destroyed. Let's read verse 10. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, highlight that, your brother Jacob. It's a reference to Israel. You will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. And then highlight this. You were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over their, them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. God's saying, you're, you're, these are your kin, the Israelites, your brother. They were facing invasion by the Babylonians. And think about all the trauma and violence and upheaval that means. And God's saying, look what you did when that happened. You stood aloof. You gloated over their destruction. You rejoiced in it. You were opportunists. You plundered Jerusalem as it was being destroyed. You kicked them when they were down. And it says, you turned in fugitives, people running away from the Babylonians. You ratted them out. You're collaborators. You're pointing and laughing at them in their day of disaster. 
Now look, God was executing his justice on the Israelites for their unfaithfulness, but he still loves them. They're still his people. And that's not an invitation when God's dealing with Israel for Edom to make it worse and to mock them in their time of need. And that's why God's zeroing in on Edom through the prophet Obadiah. Uh, Let's keep reading verse 15. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you've done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. So God's saying, Edom's getting what's coming to them. They're celebrating over Israel. That's not going to last very long. And now in verse 17, we're going to see a shift. God begins to speak not to Edom, but to Israel as they are in their despair over the exile. God says this to Israel. But on Mount Zion, that's where the temple was located, will be deliverance. Highlight deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Highlight that. Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire, and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble. And they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. So here, here's the hope that God's bringing into this. Even in the time of Israel's displacement, even in the time of their punishment and exile, he still loves them. Just like a parent still loves their child when punishing them. God still loves Israel. And it's his job to dole out his justice to those he loves, not the Edomites' job. It's like a sibling who thinks it's their job to uh, enforce mom and dad's rules against their sibling. It's not Edom's job. They shouldn't be gloating over the punishment of Israel. They should ache with those who are struggling, who are being punished. They should wish for Israel's restoration. And by the way, that's true of us too. We should never find ourselves delighting in someone else's distance from God. Mount Zion, the temple where it was, God says there will be deliverance. Israel, he says, will come back to the promised land and possess that inheritance. Because here's the thing, God can punish and still have a plan and a purpose for his people. And by the way, generations earlier, before Israel had ever even moved into the land, God warned them, hey, one day I might exile you because of your unfaithfulness. But when I do that, I'm going to bring you back when you turn to me. And so God had already preemptively promised restoration to come after punishment. Let's read this in Deuteronomy 30. I'll put it up here. This is before the Israelites ever moved into the land. It says, When you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you And gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. He's talking about the exile. Even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you'll take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. God will bring them home, bring us home, and Israel will love him with their whole hearts. And that's really what God's after, is us. 
not some superficial religious behavior, not us trying to impress him. He wants us. He wants a relationship. And God is telling the Israelites who have been mistreated by their neighbors, who are under his judgment for their unfaithfulness, he's telling them that there's hope, even in these circumstances. I'm going to bring restoration. I'm in the business of restoration, and it's going to come to you. He has plans for their future, even when he's punishing them. There's only three more verses in Obadiah. And in those verses, we're going to read them in a second, God's going to elaborate on when Israel comes back to the land, how they're going to possess all of it. And he's going to name all these places. I don't have time to point it out on the map, but essentially he's naming all the places that mark the borders, the north, south, east, west of Israel. They're going to incorporate, they're going to live in all of it. And then in the final line of Obadiah, he's going to give us the answer to those two questions, where our trust should be and how we should react when we're mistreated. Obadiah 1.19, it says this, people from the Negev, will occupy the mountains of Esau. People from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. That's on the coast. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. The company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. That's in the far north. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in uh, Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. That's in the far south. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau. And here it is, highlight this, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. The kingdom will be the Lord's. And that's our answer. The final words of Obadiah. The kingdom will be the Lord's. Who are we trusting in? Are we trusting in ourselves? Are we trusting in our ability to be self-sufficient like the Edomites did? That's not going to work. The kingdom will be the Lord's. We cannot build kingdoms that will last. We cannot build financial kingdoms or other kingdoms of security or kingdoms of emotional stability that are going to just carry us through life. Uh, We can't build political kingdoms that are going to last forever. You know, the ancient Egyptians thought they would last forever. So did the Babylonians. So did the Assyrians. So did the Greeks. So did the Romans and the Mayans and the Germans and the Soviets, the Edomites. And by the way, Obadiah's prophecy came true about the Edomites. A few centuries after, the Edomites as a distinct culture were gone. They had been slowly infiltrated by a coalition of nomadic tribes that just dismantled them from the inside. And so they were right. Yeah, some invading army couldn't defeat them in that traditional sense, but this slow-moving cultural coup happened, and by the time of Christ, they were a memory. And in the same way, we can't build a life that will endure apart from the Lord. We are his creation. And he says he's making everything new. He restores everything that's lost. He rebuilds all that is broken. He is the only one worthy of our trust as we go through life. The kingdom will be the Lord's. And how do we respond when we are mistreated because of our faith in God? When we encounter our own Edomites in our life, The answer is the same. The kingdom will be the Lord's. It's not always going to be this way. God won't allow the mistreatment of his people to go unaddressed. The kingdom will be the Lord's. We can take comfort in that. We don't need to feel unsure or worried in our life about where we stand with God or what the ultimate plan is. He is in control. The kingdom will be the Lord's. I've been doing some reading uh, about um, the 
archaeological evidence of the early church in the first few centuries. Um, and it's, it's fascinating because in the first couple hundred years after Jesus, you know, there were no church buildings. And um, even personal copies of Scripture, most people didn't have that. So if we didn't have any copies of Scripture or writings about early Christianity, if all we had were physical things you could see and touch for those first few centuries, what would we have? What would we know that Christians believed or thought? And, and it's really fascinating because really what you're looking at is early Christian art. What did they draw pictures of? What did they carve into stone in, in um, uh, catacombs and on uh, funeral epitaphs, things like that? Um, what symbols did they draw? What were the scenes that they painted? Uh, even kind of graffiti. There were, there were like, er, there's like early Christian graffiti. You know, what were they drawing? Um, and it's fascinating to see what our ancient brothers and sisters in Christ drew. Many of them were symbols of conflict um, because they were living in a culture that was standing against them. They were living in a pretender kingdom where Caesar was a god and his kingdom would last forever. And so what were, how did they think of what their life of faith was in that context? And I love this. I want to show you this picture. Second century Roman catacomb. This is a Christian symbol that someone carved into stone. It's a symbol of an anchor uh, with two fish on either side. And um, in the Greek and Roman world, uh, the symbol of the anchor was widely used um, to symbolize safety and stability in the storm. And Christians took that and, and poured new meaning into it. They hid the cross in that. Because uh, it was dangerous to talk about Jesus and be open about this. But they wanted the cross out there. And so they, they, they melded the cross with this anchor. They disguised the cross in it. And they're, they're telling each other and us that Christ is the only anchor we have in life. The only reliable, safe um, thing that we can put our trust in and security in in times of um, struggle and upheaval. The fish, very popular early Christian symbol. It evoked many aspects of Jesus's ministry, miracles that he did. And by the way, the Greek word for fish, um, ichthys or ichthus, sometimes it's pronounced, uh, pronounced um, was an acrostic poem. Uh, the, the Christians would spell out the Greek letters, and from that, they could spell out Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And so that, that's what they meant when they would draw pictures of fish, the word for fish, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. He's the anchor in life, and there's the cross right there, a symbol of stability and security in a very hostile and turbulent environment that they were living in. And that message is so powerful for us. Christ is our anchor. He is the one we can trust in life. He is the one to whom we stay tethered even when we are mistreated for our faith in big ways and small. And so the questions of Obadiah, who do we trust? How should we react when we're mistreated? Obadiah answers both. And the early Christians answered both. The kingdom will be the Lord, the Lord's. Christ is ruling and will always rule. He is our anchor. He is our Lord who loves us. He is that trustworthy anchor in life who gives us comfort and hope in spite of all kinds of challenges that come our way. Next week, we'll get into Jonah, um, which, uh, by the way, speaking of early Christians and what they were drawing pictures of and carving in those first few centuries, Jonah was one of their favorite things. 
there was a very strong connection between Christ and Jonah in the mind of the early church.